This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. Um, well, actually, uh, not just the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. Uh, we are the Intellectual Brown Web. I think it's our third episode now. Um, I'm here with Sarah Haider, Murtaza Hussein, and Shadi Hamid. I'll, I'll let them introduce themselves. Um, we're going to be talking about Israel and Palestine, so uh, going to be a little less uh, jovial and uh, relaxed, maybe, because it's a, it's a stressful, tense topic. Um, I just want to say really quickly, I don't... Um, really know that much about it. You know, I had a phase where I read a lot of Benny Morris and some other things, a lot of stuff about, you know, um, Arab politics up until about like 2002, 2003. And then I was like, this is never going to get solved. So um, I have other things that I can do with my time. And that's basically where I've been until very, very recently. I have been talking on social media about this recently, though, because uh, within about 24 hours, um, I have a lot of friends who are Jewish, uh, uh, just, you know, the way my social circles go. And, um, you know, I had like one friend and, uh, his uncle was killed, you know, just first, at first I got the notification uncle's missing. And then two hours later, uncle's dead. So that was like pretty weird. And I got some other people that I don't know as well, but this person I would say is probably my like top 30, uh, of, of friends. And so that was like pretty close to me. And then I started getting texts from other friends that are Jewish who were just like legit scared. Uh, they just, you know, a lot of them, like one of my friends is like, pretty dovish. He's a peacenik. He knows Arabic fluently. He's traveled to places like Syria, which most you know Ashkenazi Jews today do not for various reasons. So he's been very open about that sort of thing in his life. And now he's telling me that he's being radicalized. He's really stressed. He's scared. Uh, he lives in New York um, and you know he'll probably listen to this. So, uh, But anyway, like listening to that stuff like really freaked me out. Um, and then, of course, uh, I have children. And uh, I did make myself watch some, see some things. And uh, I just like, I've told my friends this, like I threw up. Uh, I was so disgusted. And so I got really freaked out. And I don't, you know, like, I don't like talk too much about Ukraine and all these other foreign things. Like there's other people to talk about it. There's other people that know about it. Uh, But, you know, I just have like a lot of Jewish friends. I do have one Palestinian friend from high school. Haven't heard too much from him. Um, You know, he's... I think I don't know what's going on. I mean, he's his family. He's Israeli Arab, actually, and so he always has very, very confused. I don't want to say confused. He always has very, very ambivalent reactions to things. That's what I'll say. So uh, I felt it was like a little closer to me uh, than most of these foreign policy things. That's why I've been talking about it, even though um, you know, obviously, I'm not an area specialist. Uh, I don't even know that much about the Middle East compared to someone like say Shadi or Murtaza. Uh, so, you know, um, that, that's where I'm coming from. There are some things related to American politics, though, and American culture that are happening. Um, I have friends who are Jewish who are very, very far left, who are shocked at some of the things that they've seen. And this is changing things. 
and and maybe we'll get into it. Um, you know, the valence of cancel culture is changing. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going on that are surprising that are triggered by you know these events in Israel and Palestine and Gaza. So um, that's why I'm talking about it. That's why I'm here. Um, I'm still learning. Um, I have no final answer. And I think um, you're fooling yourself, honestly, if you think you do. This is this is really complicated, but it's a big deal. So you know, maybe we should go for it. So um, I'll let I'll let the others talk. But that's that's my piece. That's why I'm here. That's why um, I'm choosing to talk about this, even though it's difficult. And uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any point to it, actually. You know, but I'm still doing it. Okay, so I, I, I'm Shadi Hamid. Uh, I am, uh, I was at the Brookings Institution for a long time working on U.S. foreign policy, Middle East issues. I just recently started a new job at the Washington Post as a columnist and member of the editorial board. And, um, I co-host a podcast, uh, called Wisdom of Crowds, um, as maybe some of you know. Um, so yeah, I guess, um... I'll have more to say later. Uh, you know, I I don't really have like an intro thing except to say that I am I'm disappointed and angry at a lot of what I've seen. And I think what's most striking to me in the last in the last couple of days is a shift in the discourse to and just really kind of a tr- like terrible anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim rhetoric, a lot of eliminationist rhetoric towards Palestinians as a people, the failure to make distinctions between Hamas and Gazans or Hamas and the Palestinian people. I've seen people completely go against their principles on cancel culture. And as an outspoken opponent of cancel culture for many years, it's been sad to see some of my fellow travelers just completely shift on a dime as if there was no principle undergirding their position. But, you know, I've seen, I, you know, and we can talk about that more, but um, the fact that there has been an effort, not just, not just to target or cancel um, college students who signed on to really terrible letters, just, things that I, you know, I find very abhorrent, morally reprehensible, but to expand the cancel culture net to members of these groups or people who are associated in some way or who fail to denounce the groups that they were previously part of. Um, I think I think all of this makes me really nervous. France just announced that it's uh, banning all pro-Palestinian protests. Um the British Home Secretary has talked about um, pro- pro- prohibitions on the Palestinian flag. She just floated the idea, like great thing to hear from your um, Home Secretary. So I'm I'm really worried about that shift. Where I will say in the first couple of days, if I criticize my own side, the quote unquote pro-Palestinian side, uh, and I spoke I spoke very forthrightly about this, this you know. And, and not to do like on one hand and the other hand, but, you know, to see people who are otherwise part of the pro-Palestinian um, cause or movement, just failing to failing to condemn things that should be very easy to condemn, failing to um, to really just admit that members of marginalized groups do have agency and to say that Hamas or 
who, or whoever was forced to commit these atrocities against Israeli civilians or compelled to, or that they didn't have any choice. No, however constrained your circumstances are, you always have the, you always retain the ability to make choices. So that, that to me stood out in the first couple of days, but I have seen a shift in a very frightening direction, um, you know, in Western democracies. And that's sort of where I'm at now. Um, yep. All right. Um, I'm Sarah Hader. Uh, I am a co-founder of um, several nonprofits, but um, the one that I've been affiliated with for a very long time up until most recently is ex-Muslim North America. But I also worked um, in other nonprofits. I work with uh, people who had left um, other faith communities, um, including ultra-Orthodox uh, communities. Uh, so my background is kind of in activism. Now I write and um, on my Substack, and I also have uh, a podcast with Megan Delm called A Special Place in, in Hell. And uh, my, you know, background on this is not too, you know, it, it, it's a little bit like Razib in the sense that I don't come into this with a ton of foreign policy, you know, uh, knowledge and interest. And to be frank, it's not so much a, it's, it's, it's not a product of, uh, you know, just it, you know, passivity. It's, it's, it was really a choice that I made. Um, I've been kind of a, a, a zealot, you could say about, uh, being careful with how we um, how we utilize our attention. We have such you know little to give, and we're not careful about it. I think that that is you know the the ability or inability to do that is the difference between being you know a clear thinker, a good thinker, um, and actually just getting through you know this information kind of whirlpool uh, you know with a clear head, you know, uh, and I think that's a really important skill. Um, and I've kind of always felt that way. Um, and about this issue, it just felt like there was so much going on. Uh, there's so much propaganda. It is so, so hard to sift through, you know, even basic elements of what's going on. And it, it didn't feel as if, you know, from a humanitarian perspective, and I've always been like, kind of, kind of had a humanitarian bent, it's why I got involved in activism to begin with. It, you know, you have to think about, you know, what are the miseries of the world that most need your attention? Not, you know, there's a the scale element. And, you know, if you're looking at from it from that perspective, this conflict is really not, you know, the biggest wound that the world is struggling with. And then on the other hand, there's what can I do? Which one can I affect? Which can, one can I have an influence over? Uh, and accurately, even accurately understand and then have an influence over. And I just found that this conflict failed both those tests. And so it, I thought that I would, you know, um, this is not something that's going to be what I'm, what I'm going to spend my time learning um, and taking an interest in. Having said that, it's not as if I know nothing. <laughs> you know, I, I often like declare like, oh, I don't know. I don't know anything. But um, I do, you know, <laughs> read a lot of things. I do, you know, see what's out there. Um, it's just that I, I have felt that this conflict above, you know, many other conflicts, um, it just becomes a place of really vapid, uh, political hobbyism for, 
people who belong in, you know, the diaspora communities in the West and also, uh, you know, also just political extremists of many different stripes, like it fall, it falls along the axis of a lot of different narratives for people. And so that's, uh, you know, that's something that f- makes me uh, think twice about getting involved because it feels as if it's too easy to fall into that hobbyism. It's too easy to start trying to confirm whatever narratives that I, you know, feel like are already true about the world. So, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to get involved with a political LARP. I want to make change in the world. I want to understand the world. And so I, it's not something I got too much into. Having said that, I have been talking about it a little bit more in the past couple of days. And it has been because uh, I, I felt that the response by people on like the far political left, you, the, many people listening to this will probably already know what I'm talking about, but, you know, various uh, student groups, but just like, you know, that, democratic socialist affiliated groups um it's been so there have been so many academics also and in this in the days immediately following uh the 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 kidnappings and murders of israeli citizens the first response i thought was so uh heinous and it was it was remarkable to me that 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 could have been anybody's response at all. What I expected was what I think has been happening for the most part, which is that people do the thing of we condemn it and nothing excuses terror, you know, and also, and then they'll just go back to, you know, whatever it is that the the political issue that they care so much about. But it, it, in this case, it seemed like there was a perhaps very small, but it didn't seem too small, but it does certainly not an insignificant portion of the, uh, of the political left that seem to excuse it. They seem to justify it. And I, I, I think this is the, this is my line in the sand uh, that I think that at the very least you should be able to say that there are some things that we can't excuse. Uh, And it's not, this is not so much a comment on Palestinians or Israelis, like, you know, what they're doing over there is, I know it's a whole different um, situation to actually be exposed to a war. We don't, we we are playing, you know, we are watching it as a, as a sport. And I think that for the people here, for, you know, those, those white kids who are walking, you know, down the street in, in New York, uh, chanting, you know, free Palestine immediately after, immediately after a despicable attack, I thought was a level of of cruelty and inhumanity that I haven't seen in a long time. And I just didn't, I think I just didn't know that it was that bad. I, that's, I think that's where I landed. And that's where my comments on Twitter, where I said that I was radicalized, that's where they're coming from. They're coming from the fact that I just didn't know that we were, we were capable of this. Now, of course, I'm not excusing. So because th- these are my politics, I would never excuse whatever Israel is going to do next based on what's happened to them. So I don't know why we're, we're starting down that path. Um, anyway, so I'll let let you guys speak of said enough. Yeah, so I approach it as a journalist, and I've been spent time in both Israel and the Palestinian territories in a professional and personal capacity. I have friends and people, many people with family, both living in Israel, Jewish people, and also Palestinians. Uh, and I'm first and foremost concerned about them and their well being and the well being of their families. Uh, the reason I want to talk about this also is because. I think you've all seen, everyone's seen this overwhelming tidal wave of, you know, hysteria and hatred, and I would say psychosis, which I have not seen, like mass psychosis, I've not seen in a few years at least, 
Uh, it's been very, very disturbing. Uh, I echo a lot of what Sarah and Shadi said. Uh, first of all, I was, I've been seeing these statements from people and the initial response. And I think that it's a manifestation of this very broad dehumanization and rage, which is taking hold. And the, you know, solidifying of an ideology, you know, in some quarters that sees moral impunity prevailing in certain circumstances, which I think that no traditional belief system, the whole point is to, you know, legislate against moral impunity to create a framework. And some people maybe have lost sight of that or cross some other line or embrace something else, which I find very disturbing. Uh, also, you know, the BK, this, is, this is a foreign country. It's a foreign, two foreign nations, and it's a conflict with its own terms and history, which takes a lot, long time to take seriously and view its own terms. I think people are not doing that, and they're projecting U.S. domestic policy, uh, politics and rivalries onto something else and seeing what they want to see in it. And I've been very disturbed to see the, the breakups of people, like the real cracking up of people's relationships and uh, the way that's being framed in something which is just not. And I think Shadi spent time there. He knows it's not a global religious conflict between two groups of people who live every part of the world. It's a ter- conflict over territory and land, which has been internationalized in various ways during various times, first as a left, uh, leftist cause and then a uh, religious cause and so forth, which is a tactic to try to uh, enlist support and so forth during the conflict. It's being misviewed. And I think the worst comments have come on all sides from people who are not really invested or taking it seriously or view it as anything but an abstraction. And they're projecting a lot of things onto it and responding in that way. And it's not been helpful. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it is a really interesting point. Like why is this conflict so evocative to people? And I would say that it's not because, you know, I think 500,000 people have died in Ethiopia in the last couple of years by some estimates and the Syrian civil war had similar death tolls and many, many other conflicts. If you look at it that way, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yemen. Yemen, Yemen. I think that the issue is that this is, happens to be a place in the world and a conflict that lies across several very important and dangerous fault lines. Uh, there's a religious fault line. It's arguably, uh, you could say, a civilizational fault line, a racial fault line, if you want to view it that way in some ways. I think it's a bit complicated. But also the most important fault line, in my opinion, and which can be evidenced in looking at the reactions of different governments, it's the fault line between the West and what you can call the global South. Because Western countries have been very, very unequivocal in their response to what how, what, how they see this conflict. If you look at the response of China and Russia, and even India, where there's a lot of popular support for the Israeli cause, and Africa and Latin America, much more equivocal. They view it in a very different way uh, what this conflict is. You can see a very, very fierce uh, dividing line. And to the extent that there are people in all over the world who kind of embrace a third-worldist ideology or view themselves from the perspective of the global south, they view it in a different way. And I see right now the clash of two irreconcilable narratives because if you look at them on their own terms both of them have a certain logic to them and you can embrace them and dismiss the other entirely but i think it's you know as someone who sees because i know people from both sides very very intimately i can see and put myself in the shoes and i see what they mean uh and it's very complicated so you know no one likes to hear that because they get pissed off when you say something's complicated when they're emotional about it but i think that's that is true and the thing that i think we have to adhere to and impress is that First of all, this is not a generalized conflict between everyone in the world. And secondly, there are certain boundaries as human beings we can't cross. If Whoever we are, whatever side we are, whatever positionality we look at it from, 
atrocities against non-combatants, civilians, uh, women, children, and the like, that's unacceptable for anyone. And that's a first starting point of any normal conversation about this. So I want to talk to you guys because obviously I respect you, your positions and you think about it very deeply and hope our audience can also take something constructive because right now the conversation is not constructive. It's something I have not seen this type of, you know, negative uh, outpouring since, you know, many, many years. Yeah, let's, uh, you know, um, we got some topics here and I think maybe what I want to hit on is uh, the eliminationist rhetoric because... I think we've all we know what you're talking about, Shadi. If you want, and I know Murtaza, I think you got into some tiffs with people online because of it. Um, I have not addressed directly, mostly because a lot of it seems heated, and I think it will cool down. I hope it'll cool down. But do you want to talk a little bit about that, Shadi? Yeah, yeah. So I want to bring up the 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 power differential between. So the college students and progressive groups in America that had just like absolutely unjustifiable ways of responding to this, no empathy for Israeli civilians, not even acknowledging that Israeli civilians were killed by Hamas. Um, and it's not enough to say we condone the killing on both sides, like generic statements. And then, you know, as others have said, you move on to like what you actually want to talk about. Um but so there, there's those people, but something does make me uncomfortable about shining so much light on what is still a relatively small fringe of the left when they're ultimately powerless in the conflict. They have no influence, like no one really takes them seriously from a policy perspective. But when you look at the people who do have the power to shape lives and kill lives going forward, which is the Israeli uh, military as they bombard Gaza. I mean, that is happening as we speak. It's going, it's intensifying. There are already, I think, real concerns about violations of the laws of war. There will be war crimes if there haven't been already. Um, I'd have to get into a whole conversation about, you know, whether you can have an ethical siege of an entire people, which is, you know, some of you may have seen Richard Hanania's like atrocious piece. Um, it's called the case for an ethical siege or something to that effect. But when you have current and former senior Israeli officials saying that Gaza's fair game, basically anything goes, where there was one quote from an Israeli official that Gaza will become a city of tents and quote unquote, there will be no buildings left. And to see someone like former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett saying on TV that um, Gazans, all, Gazans and not just Hamas fall under the category of my enemies. So a reporter out on this, on this, in this clip asked him like, what about Gazan civilians and babies who are in inc incubators and in hospitals if the electricity gets cut off? And he just says, he, he gets outraged and say, are you really asking me about Palestinian civilians as if just doing that is just absurd to him and shouldn't even be a factor? When Lindsey Graham says, level the place, these are people who have power. These are senior politicians. And it just seems there, there seems to be a profound imbalance when it comes to all the attention we're paying to like crazy leftists. Who cares? Like, ultimately, there's all we know that the like there's a portion of the left that is crazy. All of us, all of us can agree on that. But now we have to turn to the people who are actually going to be waging this war 
and bombing, you know, um, a place that has a densely populated piece of territory. And I worry that our own country, Amer- our American politicians are not going to make any real effort to restrain Israel. Like anything will go. And I just think, I just think that, yeah, so that's, that's where I would just, and maybe I'm just also affected by what I see on, on Twitter, like just nonstop where people will say things like, oh, of course, we don't want Palestinian civilians to die. But if they do die, it's all Hamas's fault, as if Israel has no agency. So I think either side is essentially making arguments about moral agency and responsibility that I think are just completely wrong. Everyone has moral agency and responsibility. You can't say that the Israeli military has no choice to level Gaza. No, they do have a choice. You know, I add very quickly too, like those statements I saw from Natalie Bennett and a very great chorus of US and Israeli officials, very disturbing because, and it has, it's very consequential because it implies to most of the world who's alleges for a long time that international law is not constrained on us, you know, on it's the exceptions for you and not for us. And when we're mad enough, if you're powerful enough, you can violate it with impunity and say you're going to do it and then do it afterwards. It's going to have knock-on effects that, you know, are very detrimental beyond this conflict as well, too. You're going to see huge numbers of people almost certainly killed, pretty much acknowledging before the fact that they're going to do it. And is there going to be an ICC investigation after which the U.S. supports or anyone takes part in? I kind of doubt it for political reasons. You're going to see the breakdown or whatever, you know, optimistic liberal norms, institutions, which may have nascently started to exist after the Cold War. Uh, it's going to go out the window. It's happening right now. And U.S. officials are basically, they're so angry, they're endorsing it. And it's very, very disturbing to see. Yeah, um, I think I think a lot of people, you know, believe that and point that out, these sorts of inconsistencies where, you know, <laughs> America does what it wants. Uh, I, I'm getting a lot of vibes of 2001. Um, and it just, it's, I mean, I'm, I think some of us are old enough to remember. It feels the same. I don't think it's going to be the same. Uh, but there's a lot of the same types of things that people are saying. Um, and I think a lot of us, I mean, I'm, I don't want it to be like that again. Like we lost, we lost perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I, I worry for falling into the same traps as we did before, because immediately after 9-11, there was, you know, the, uh, it's, well, there, I mean, ac- actually, at that time, there was a little we had five minutes where everybody felt sorry for America. It feels like there wasn't as much of that with Israel. And that was I, I, that was the point of my radicalization where I saw that there were, you know, maybe just extremist groups. Maybe they're just completely fringe. I don't actually think that they're all that fringe. Um, I think we've been saying that about fringe leftists for a very long time. We've been saying, I feel like I've just been saying the same thing for the past 10 years and I've only seen their power and influence increase on US institutions and to have, and to go from being kind of just a a protest by students to being enacted as policy within institutions and have like the broad effect on how we live in the United States, you know, not just there's a foreign policy element of it that you guys are talking about, you know, a lot about, but what concerns me is uh, what I see that I know, I know something about, and I I am afraid of, I'm afraid of this kind of uh, 
political LARPing that I see uh, amongst uh, the political left. And, you know, they, yeah, there's old guys and they're saying a bunch of horrible things, but this is the new generation that's that's coming up. And they're the ones that are going to be in power soon enough. So I am, I, I think it is a concern. You're right. There's a power imbalance, but only due to time, you know, in, in, in 20 years, 30 years, I think, it will certainly have switched um, in, in, I hope not, not as extreme of a way as, as I'm fearing, but I think that there's, there, there's something to pay attention to here too. It's not a bunch of crazy college kids. Um, and I think it did it, from a, from an optics perspective, it did the Palestinian uh, you know, side a great deal of harm because I heard from a lot of people who are like me, just kind of on the outskirts, but have a lot of sympathy for everybody, understand that the issue is complex, and so are not willing to wage in into the conflict itself, uh, knowing that there's there's a lot to know. But then when you see immediately afterwards, you know, something that is inexcusable, even a small proportion of people, and it wasn't just students, it was professors, it was, you know, I, I found them myself, I ran into it myself, journalists, adults, um, who were saying these kinds of things who were, who were, they wouldn't necessarily say, this is Israel's fault, but they would say things like, uh, you know, what do you think? decolonialism means like this is what decolonialism entails um and this is part of the struggle this is part of the uh, uh the resistance and when you're concerned about what you're concerned about shadi which i i am also concerned about that there's a uh a, 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 we're going to eliminate the space between hamas and the palestinian people in our minds and that's very dangerous from a foreign policy perspective that's already happening we see that happening the comments by some of these, you know, radical leftists who you are dismissing are helping close that, you know, that gap, which is really, really dangerous. And that's, that might be one reason to take them extremely seriously, even if you broadly sympathize with the Palestinian side. I actually yeah. agree with you. Okay. I, I, can I just say something really quick and then I'll let you go, Murtaza? I, I, I do want to say in response to Shadi, like, obviously he is correct. These radical DSA type people have no, to what I can see, real policy influence. I'm actually seeing, and I think John McCorder talked about this in his book on wokeness. There is a gap here between academia and I think like pretty much the rest of society right now, because I am still hooked into academic. I mean, as you are, I think too. Twitter, like I have a lot of like friends that are in science and academia, and a lot of the really vocal political accounts are quiet. Whereas, like, except for like some a few Jewish professors and Israeli professors, and they're quiet because they're scared of their students. Uh, they're scared of social ostracism. I had a friend who um, he didn't want to like a tweet by somebody who objected to the. This was within the first twenty four hours. What happened in Israel? Because he didn't want pro Hamas accounts coming after him. Which I was like, okay, this is crazy. But it's because there's um, such such fear in academia and um, is still continuing. There are accounts that like talked about black lives matter, like every political thing that are all they're tweeting about are faculty jobs now. Like they're, and so I think the perceptions can be a little different based on how much interaction you have with that outside of academia. I think it is obviously totally different, even places like Hollywood, you know, and I don't know what this, what's going on here, but I just want to observe that and go on Murtaza. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, that I do agree that it's, I was disturbed very deeply by some of the reactions of people. And I do think it matters because, you know, if you look at 
the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, they thought very, very hard about what the future of white people was going to be in South Africa and tried to, you know, work with them and have a vision of that. And, you know, that's what ultimately why there was some reconciliation or concession. You can argue maybe it didn't work out in the long term, but at least it happened. If I think people have embraced, they clearly have embraced an ideology and it comes from, I guess, in academia and it's been inculcated there and strengthened there that if you can convincingly in your mind deem someone a colonizer that puts them outside of the scope of moral human consideration and the way i think about my values i'm observantly muslim the way i think about it is that's how i inform my political values there's no such concept of that there's no concept of if you can call someone a colonizer you can kill them and their children their lives become forfeit that's not something that we believe in i'm Shadi agrees with me about that too uh, he's commented about it as well so to see the fact that people a great number of people, seemingly lay people, people come from these environments and activism, academia, radical academia, uh, to seemingly have embraced that, I find it very disturbing. And I don't think it, it's incumbent upon you to say this is wrong. This is morally wrong. It's not what we stand for. It's not what we're trying to accomplish. And if it were what we we're trying to accomplish, then the Israelis are absolutely right to fight to the death and defend against us by any means, because that's why would you side with someone who wants to kill you? There's no compromise between this. So I've seen some Jewish leftists, people who are very, you know, very brilliant and very uh, moral, clearly, like Peter Beinart and others have been very disturbed by this outpouring that they've seen from some people uh, who've responded in this way. I would say for the initial what took place, I think that there's a little bit of a misconception, at least on some parties, what happened. Some of the immediate outbursts of protest and reaction were based before all of the reports of what exactly took place had come out. There had been, obviously, people followed the Caesar Gaza for a very long time. It's a very, very cruel and uh, disturbing uh, situation that had been going on. There been many massacres of Palestinians in 15 years, which are not really reported or discussed at all. So they were talked about, well, they broke out. And they're saying, okay, they broke out. Let's pr- celebrate that. That's what we're waiting for. It took a little bit a while longer to see, well, I don't want to be celebrating killings of innocent men, women, and children. And some people backed down from that. And some people didn't. But there was a distinction. It was not all clear in the initial reports as it often isn't so you know i just don't think that and sarah's right too it's like you know a long-term thing if you want to hold power in the future what value is going to bring that power you have to think very seriously about now and when you don't have power it doesn't mean that you're freed of responsibility morally yeah good sir yeah yeah just um real quick i just also wanted to add to that point that you brought up where it does it people didn't it might have been that they didn't know the full extent of it. I don't think anybody knew the full extent of it. The lesson that we should probably all take, and I don't know why, you know, but every time you bring it up in the context of uh, a rapidly unfolding uh, an event, then maybe we should stop and take a breather and not comment right at the gates and and wait, you know, a few days maybe uh, before a response that tends to get a lot of. I, I always get a lot of pushback, and whoever, whichever side that the event is, uh, you know, helping along um, is the one that that calls me a Nazi or a leftist or whatever at that moment. But I, I, it, when it comes to the student groups, it seems as if I don't know how much everybody knew about what happened. Also, because that statement came out very quickly with with this is the Harvard student. Um, letter that I think that we're all we're all thinking of, um, where lots of different groups um, of Harvard students came together and signed this letter. And that letter was, I thought, abhorrent. I thought they, they it, 
they should have just simply should have at least said that we don't condone this kind of violence at least at some point but it it was a it was a remarkable letter at the same time i don't think a lot of the members of those groups seem to have known that a, that a letter letter came out and a lot of people found that unbelievable but really like student organizations they're not going to approve everything by every member like certainly not and it's kind of outrageous to me to see people be very hostile against those students who probably just, you know, signed up for that society so they could go, you know, I, I go to the Pakistani students, whatever, so I could have biryani once in a while when they're having a function. It doesn't mean that this is a huge reflection of my politics. Um, and I found that focusing on that to be kind of alarming in itself, again, just because this is my this is my country. This is what I know. This is what I know about the institutions and uh, a norm that starts to target student groups for or students themselves for the actions and statements made by some leader on the club of one of the 10 clubs they joined is kind of absurd. Uh, I'm going to totally. Thanks for I'll let let you speak. I I just want to say one thing. Um, Some people, I mean, the DSA paraglider stuff, that was fucked up. They, yeah. they knew what was going. That was fucked yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, BLM Chicago, that that paraglider thing. They yeah. they had that image of of a paraglider. Going they knew out. what was going on. They yeah. knew what was going on. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, I guess like one lesson is that look, not to say that we're the ones who stand above the fray and we're like the reasonable ones. You know, I don't mean to make it sound like that, but. I guess we've known this for a long time. Like most people don't have consistent principles. Everyone's doing kind of situational ethics and situational morality. It just bothers me that like the cancel culture stuff, like it, that it can't be that hard to just like try not to cancel college students. Um, And again, I think Sarah's point is really important. Um, not everyone who's a member of these groups agrees with what their group signed on to or put out. And not everyone who participates in a pro-Palestine rally on campus is pro-Hamas. And, you know, it just, I'm I'm worried because this does, as, uh, you know, as others have noted, it, this does remind me of the post 9-11 environment. And some of you may have seen what Governor Kathy uh, Hoshel said yesterday, which I found like just. All right, why, why don't you, uh, for the listeners, why don't you quote it? Like, because it's not that long. The, the the part that I saw that you tweeted out. Okay, okay, let me bring that up. Because <laughs> so, well, I, I, yeah, I'm asking you because I'm not sure if I totally agree with your interpretation, but I don't know. So let, let's listen to it. Okay. Okay, let me see. Yeah, so this is the governor of New York, uh, Kathy Hochul. She was asked a question by a reporter, and let me just make sure I get it right. So she was asked by a reporter. um, Okay, this is the question. uh, You've been very vocal in protecting Jewish New Yorkers in the wake of the horrific attacks by Hamas. But New York is a very diverse state, and I'd like to know, what is your message, Governor, to Palestinian New Yorkers who fear for their own civilian loved ones as Israel promises a complete siege of the Gaza Strip? You know, I think a pretty clear question, you know, um, 
the kind of thing that you would do as a governor if you if you're talking about your own residents, your own like Palestinian New Yorkers. Anyway, I'll let me not editorialize. So Governor Hochul's response, her first response is, I call on law abiding Palestinians to reject Hamas. They should not necessarily be confused. Hamas is a, is a terrorist organization. They should not define the people who the Palestinian something something. It's a little bit confusing. Um, but she just goes on about Hamas and doesn't say anything about Gaza or address the actual question that was answered. My issue here, just to be clear, um, everyone who wants to like should who wants to engage in this debate publicly should be very clear about their position on Hamas and condemning what they did. That's not what's going on here. She's presuming that Palestinian Americans are sympathetic to Hamas. And she's saying that if you are a law-abiding Palestinian New Yorker, then you your first step must be to issue a condemnation. I remember this post 9-11, where just by we as Muslims, just by virtue of being Muslim, we were always asked to prove our loyalty, to prove that we were against terrorism, as if being Muslim made us uniquely susceptible. I didn't have anything to do with 9-11. I shouldn't be asked to make a public statement about it or to show that I'm one of the good Muslims. And this is the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing and seeing now. Like That's just incredibly offensive to Palestinians to assume that they would be supportive of Hamas. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think your interpretation is fine. I get it. And when I first read it, I like 100% was like, okay, yeah, I get how you're reacting. And But I don't know if she meant it so tightly. It seemed like it's a short statement. Um, you know, there are a lot of... So I would say um, one thing that I... Distinguishing between 9-11, the analogy 9-11 Muslims and Palestinians and the, the, the current events in Israel, which analogy makes sense. Um, I do think that... 9/11 and you know most of the most of the 9/11 terrorists were I think Saudi. I mean it was a very I mean what does like a Filipino Muslim have to do with that? Like yes they're Muslim but I felt like it was very diffuse and it, you know it made sense when it comes to like the Palestinians uh, like basically I mean maybe this is not true. Well Palestinian Christians are different especially the ones that came like a century ago, but a lot of Palestinian Americans that I've known casually and the one friend that I have that's a pretty close friend they're very, very um, like involved and they're knowledgeable for like a regular person about this topic because you know their family either they're refugees or they decide to stay and stuff like that. So um, I feel like they're involved in the politics of this issue, and so maybe that's what she was getting at. I do agree that it's not artful, but um, I think that you could be a little bit more charitable potentially. That's what I would say because I okay, yeah. but will we? That to Israeli Americans or Jew, or Jews more broadly, um, and say, if you are an Israeli or a Jew, that you have to issue a condemnation of the Israeli occupation to even have entry into the conversation. That's that's absurd. fair. Just, that's fair. Left, and leftists do that. That's fair. But that's what I'm saying. That. Yeah, leftists do that. Like that. I remember comments from you know when the women's march was going on that you know people were saying uh, that. Jewish women or, or or 
Zionists were not welcome in the Women's March because you can't be a Zionist and also be a feminist, which is like they don't contradict. Like you can't; they're unrelated. That was specifically um, Linda. Was like, that, was, that was Linda Sarsour. But there was a lot of that, and I've I've heard a lot of that that you cannot be Zionist and also be a humanitarian. You cannot be, and I mean, I I don't. I'm not making comment on on Zionism in particular, but it's. It, it, I think many Jews do feel that they they have to do a similar thing. Like they have to, they have to hide their Zionism or they have to hide their sympathies of the state of Israel at all. Like I, I, or just be very upfront about it and be like a right winger and be, you know, going on the podcast and talking about it all the time. But if you're on the left, uh, that it, that is kind of like, you know, this is something that you must sort of conceal about yourself. And it, it, you know, I, I think that we should have one standard that we apply if if we are going to apply one. Um, and it it I, I don't I don't like seeing that statement from um, from the from the governor. I don't think she thought it through too much. I do see the parallels to 9-11. But then but then we must also really shut down this rhetoric of uh, this is what an, this is what a um, struggle looks like. Like this is what you know, shaking off the boots of whatever it looks like. That has to be rhetoric that is understood to be extremely harmful um, and something we take care of right away. But it feels like we're not taking that as seriously as we probably should. Yeah, Murtaza, you haven't talked in a while. Let me just say something really quickly. And then, you know, if someone else wants to say one thing that the 9-11, the 2001 vibe that I'm getting is uh, there was a lot of you have to read the room before that was a term back then. and. I don't really want to ever go back to that. I think that caused many problems. And so some of us, whatever our opinion, I mean, I'm seeing people where, you know, and I know a lot of people on the right, uh, you know, quite far right sometimes. And privately, like they're trying to push back against, you know, like de facto neocon resurgence, like Lindsey Grahamism, so to speak, uh, because they don't want to get pulled into something and they don't want to be accused of being unpatriotic because they don't agree with everything that Benjamin Netanyahu says, for example, you know. Um, and so I think we have learned a little bit. It's not a total repeat. I think people who are a little older, um, in particular, remember the groupthink that happened for about a year or two and um, how p- Americans got blinded. And we don't want to get blinded again that way. Yeah, I think this is going to be a struggle for diaspora people, you know, like I think and and. And that's what frustrates me about all this, because I don't feel like it is, you know, that I that I owe anything to the various groups that I belong to, to have a specific political opinion about this conflict that is so far away that I have a hard time, you know, really grappling with all the facts um, of and 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 yet this is uh, I do feel pressure to you know, uh, to, to, to talk about Palestine, to be involved in the, in the issue when I was a young, you know, Muslim or when, when I hadn't come out of the closet as, as, as an atheist, this was the politics that everybody was involved in. Like this was the Muslim community's politics. You know, once you, when you were young and you got, you were, you know, in college and you were getting your wings, you got involved in, in, in this specific conflict. I don't think that was a good thing. I think from within the community, it was a way of bringing the community together because there's all these different diasporas from these different traditions and they have their own like kind of focus slums. So this was a way in which all of them sort of came together under a unified umbrella. But I, I do also feel like those are the kinds of things that lead to a, a group think, you know, because the, that that's, those are the politics of your people. These are the politics of my tribe. And then I get pulled into it 
um, you know, in sort of naturally in that way. And of course that happens on the other side as well. He's treated like a litmus test or basically, I don't know, groupthink is a good way of putting it, but basically a lot of people have instinctive responses in the subject. They don't follow it minutely in a day-to-day basis or understand the intricacies or really pay attention otherwise, but it's like a flag to rally under for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it serves that purpose. I actually want to bring up something Shadi said too about cancel culture. You know, I actually never once believed that there was any really broad, outside of a few very principled people here and there, there was ever any broad commitment to free speech as a rule per se. I think everyone wants to censor speech that they find offensive. It's just the difference is what is the speech that we're going to censor. And free speech was kind of a useful tool when the people who felt that their speech, preferred speech, was losing the power of battle, they could rally under a presumed universal value to push back against that. I never once believed that that was actually sincere in any way for most people. And I'm not surprised <laughs> it's being pushed back now. Yeah. You know, the level of uh, lack of irony and the extreme nature of it is kind of funny in some ways, but I'm not too surprised by it. I will say that, you know, when you're in college, you tend to be a little crazy. I think that especially young men are insane until 28 29 my brother's a criminal lawyer he said that his clients immediately fall off the cliff like a number of clients after the age of 30 like no young men stop, just stop committing crimes because their neurology whatever else it comes to normal i'm sure women are similar as well too but you know you say a lot of crazy things you can't shouldn't be a mark of on you should be corrected and you should be condemned if you do that if it's something morally reprehensible but it should not be branded on your career forever or you know create an environment where you're afraid to speak or figure out your thoughts when you're younger, which if you pan people preemptively doing that, it will create that environment. And I do think that, uh, you know, I was very formed by the years after 9-11. I grew up in that time. It's the reason that I got into the work that I do now because I felt compelled to respond to what was going on. I think that this could be a lot worse, actually. The actual ramifications of this could be worse in many, many ways in terms of destruction of interpersonal relationships, uh, the war is gonna probably going to go on for months. And imagine all the horrors and the scenes and the polarization that will ensue from that. And it could expand to other countries as well, too. It could be a much, much bigger conflict uh, than we've seen in many, many years. So I think that, you know, we could see backtrack, social destruction, social, sorry, coarsening of social relations, political and legal effects. I think that expressing support for Palestinians generally in the future in the United States could be criminalized in many, many ways or pressured in many ways that we haven't seen in the past or for many, many years. Uh, I think that it could be a lot worse. So I think that if the best thing you can do is try to be level-headed and try to not respond. If you are in a position where you can do that and you have an audience, don't respond purely emotionally. Think of the day after. Think of the kind of world you want to see at the end of it already because most people are going to respond in a way which could be very provocative. And it's easy to get swept along especially when we're seeing what's happening right now. Sarah, I'll be quick. Um, no, I, know you want to, I'll, I know you have to say something. <laughs> so the stuff about college students, um, there's a lot we can say about it. Maybe we should talk about it a little bit, because Shadi, you've been talking about it, and this whole Bill Ackman thing is is big now. Um, so, Do you want to say what the Bill Ackman thing is for people? Who yeah, so the Bill Ackman, basically the organizations that you know came out with that thing about 
you know, Palestine and, and all that that was offensive to a lot of people and made it seem like the Israelis caused it. Um, all of those organizations have a bunch of people associated with the organizations, students at Harvard. And Ackman and actually Max Meyer, who's someone I actually know, uh, he lives in Austin part-time. Um, you know, there's a lot of people. They're getting a list of those people. And basically, they're going to create a blacklist, and you have to like say that you don't believe this. I mean, that's basically. I mean, they're they're, they're in Google Docs, right? And then wait, there was. This, um, wait, is that ser- wait? It's like a literal blacklist. Yeah, I mean, he's going to use it to filter. I mean, Bill Ackman is like a very Zionist guy. I mean, he's like a liberal, you know, moderately liberal Jewish billionaire. I mean, he doesn't want people working for him that he thinks hate Jews, right? That's his attitude. So. Um, but I want to say something really quickly, and I'll, Sarah, I'll let you talk. Um, this whole thing about like people when they're like in college and stuff. All right, I wrote something in the year two thousand, a letter to a new public anti-immigration publication called VDare. That has followed me for twenty three years. Uh, Compact brought it up literally this year. So this whole stuff about things shouldn't be used against college students. I'm like, oh, that's that's fine, but I know they are. Like they're used against me. They're used against me professionally for 23 fucking years. So all of this stuff about how, oh, we shouldn't treat college students like this. Like you do. It's just not the ones that you, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that make us even more committed? Like, yeah, but how are you going to, how are you going to like, how are you going to like change people if you don't get them have some skin in the game? Because they don't care if it doesn't happen to them. Right. They have no principles. You said that Murtaza. There should be reciprocity, and you're right. There's not. It's just like a battle. It's a power battle between people. Unfortunately, I'd like to create a world where there's reciprocity, and I agree with you that it should not be that's crazy to hold someone's 23 year old letter against them. It's just that you know, if we're in a position where we can model reciprocity, we should do it. And if you kind of educated and older, and you have money, you should try to say, okay, let's there's a detente to this. If it's possible to have a detente, yeah, and do that. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe it's, it's too wishful thinking. I don't know, but at least I want to endeavor towards it. Well, so if you don't, if you say, you know, that nobody, you know, nobody really believes in free speech, which I think that nobody really believes in anything, right? Like, there's, 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 Uh, I mean, look, 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 like, give it out to, give it out to Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald believes in. Sure. Yes, there are very few people who have true principles that don't get, you know, moved around by the winds of the day. Like, that's, that's a rare individual. And even there's like complexity within, within that scope, too. Like, you can, I can be very principled on one issue, but not very principled on others, on other issues that you know hit an, uh, an emotional nerve in more powerfully that's a you know like that's across the board something that happens um nat hentoff wrote a really good book like so long ago i think it was it must have been in the 80s but um it's called free speech for me but not for thee and it just it just like catalogs like how the right and the left like relentlessly try to censor each other and when they're being censored they cry free speech but you know the usefulness of having the norm to begin with you know the usefulness of saying cancel culture is bad is that then you can wield it to you know, uh, Bill Ack- Ackman, Ackerman, what is this thing? Yeah. You can say this to him, like, look, you are being a hypocrite. And that is, that is actually pretty powerful. People don't want to be hypocrites. People don't want to be inconsistent. They see themselves as very inconsistent. They see themselves as principled. So if they hold a principle, you can then hold them to account for it, maybe move them, maybe not move them, maybe move some others who are listening. But if you don't hold the principle to begin with, which is the problem with, with, with the other side to some extent if you don't hold the principles again with well what can i hold you to you know how can i how can i say you're being a hypocrite when you never believed in that principle to begin with so that's that's the why it's important to say that yes cancel culture is always wrong yes free speech matters yes we shouldn't you know 
take something someone wrote as a blog post. How about, you know, I mean, yeah, young I men, it must be a young man thing. These concerns to Bill Ackman and the other guy you mentioned. Like, if you, if you want to have a list, keep it to the actual people who actually said something, but to expand it to all the members, like at the very least, there should be a backing down from this maximalist approach of guilt by association that anyone who's a member of these groups, but didn't even know about what the groups were signing on to like those people. I mean, that should be like an obvious and easy thing for, for someone to accept. I would hope. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. Um, I think we all want to get there. I think the, it's like a game theoretic issue. Um, a lot of us on the right are just afraid that they're going to like get off scot-free because that's what they do to us in terms of like, oh, you were in a room with so-and-so who was in a room with so-and-so. Therefore, this is, I mean, this is what we live through. Cause like the left dominates the cultural institutions, and the cultural organs, right? So they're judge, jury, and executioner. And we, and like now, Something happened, you know, in terms of like this Israel thing, like a lot of Jews are like freaking out about the left. And now like we see a shot. And so what you're saying is like, no, don't go in for the kill right now. And like a lot of people are scared because if they don't go in for the kill, not like Rod Dreher just put up a post where it's like, this is the right's last chance. This is the right's last chance. We're talking like, you know, flight 93 or whatever uh, type mentality. A lot of people on the right are thinking like we got to go in now because otherwise they're going to come back and they're going to be scot free and then they're going to like you know the the woke the woke regime will continue. That's what's I think the worry. Yeah. Here. So I, I think I agree with what you're saying a little bit. Was even this I, I wrote about this a long time ago when it comes to cancel culture and it was just like a piece where I was like, look, they're never going to agree that cancel culture exists. Um, and that was in response to it was really like heartwarming little like piece written by um, the fire president, uh, Greg Lukianoff, um, being like, look, cancel culture is real. And here's like, let me give you all this documentation. And then, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, it's like, oh, it's accountability culture. And my argument there was that so long as the victims of cancel culture are uniformly on one side or even like on on like majority on one side, it is going to be a potent political weapon and you cannot allow and the other side will not allow it to go away. You know what I mean? Like they're not going to now say, okay, this is a problem until it becomes sort of evenly harmful, which is really, really depressing and sad. And I'm not, I'm not an accelerationist here. I'm not saying like, let's have more, you know, uh, student heads until we get to parity, but that's just unfortunately how we're, how we've been going about this issue. And I, I've been seeing this a lot in in my in my mentions from folks on the right, where they'll be like, "Yes, this is cancel culture, and we hated it for a long time. It's payback." Like you'd think that sometimes people who have gone, who have become been victims or been abused by different things, would actually be the ones who hold to the principle most. I'm, I'm being naive. Obviously, this is not the way it works in real life. I guess I just. Yeah, it's just a human nature thing, I suppose, in the end. But, but if they've been through it, they should be they should at least be offering up a pretense and saying, OK, we know 
So let's actually find a way forward where anyway, that's I think it works. It does work like that, but just within your tribe. Like if you've been through cancel culture, like if you've been canceled on your side, you're more likely to forgive somebody else on your side that's been canceled and be like very generous to them. (laughs) That's it. But you don't forgive the other side. You think, okay. I think I think Hanania is right um, that that the left cannot cancel the right nearly as much anymore because there's no consensus. Like we're just gonna we don't care, you know, we just don't care because uh, some of the cancellations uh, are like warranted depending on how you want to say it, but a lot of them are not. And um, since a lot of them are not, people are just gonna ignore all of them and vice versa. Um, that's where we're at. I think issue with cancellation, and I know a lot of people. I mean, I've kind of been canceled, but I still have, you know, whatever. I'm not, like, totally canceled. I'm, like, semi-canceled. Um, there's, I know people who are, like, seriously canceled. People whose lives uh, have been destroyed in a lot of ways, a lot of personal relationships. Um, asking those people to be generous of spirit is – I mean, I've known – yeah, I've known people that are extremely bitter who are, like, you don't know who they are. They've been forgotten, and they can never come back because once – what happens is, you know, the, the Google is forever – you know, blacklists of, of some sorts or forever. And so these people are never going to be the way. What we need is people at the top, the cultural leaders with some virtue to actually signal that they can arbitrate in a way where they will enforce the old liberal norms. And I don't see anybody like that. We have Claudine Gray. We have people like that. Okay. Unfortunately. So let's call for an amnesty. <laughs> Everyone can come back. A truth, a truth and right. People have said yeah, that before. Like, People have literally said that. A, a, a cancellation jubilee. That would be a good column, actually. Oh, uh, okay, I'll make a note of re- that. Truth and reconciliation is good because you can give a testimony, but this is who I am. I was canceled this time. I'd like to say this. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just like a purge, like a purge day where we all like dig through each other's histories, find the worst like AOL chat comment and, and yeah, everyone's, guilty everyone's canceled and then it's over. <laughs> hmm. Well, I mean... Well, uh, go on, Murtaza. Yeah, one quick point. I just want to say something also about the the way that this is kind of developing in the U.S. especially. Because Israel and Israel-Palestine conflicts treated like an extension of U.S. domestic politics. Uh, but despite that, it's not actually the 51st state in, in reality. Most people don't know much about it in detail. So I find that whenever there's a conflict and people react emotionally, uh, they understand it on the lowest common denominator. And I've seen people understand now it's a religious conflict. And it's like a conflict between Muslims and Jews. And that's what's going on. Why it started 5,000 years ago because something happened in the book. And this is what's happening. I know that there's a religious component to it. But Shadi spent time there. I spent time there. It's not, that's not the only thing going on here. It's not the main thing going on here. Israel has ties with most countries. The religious aspect has no bearing upon it. So I think that people, Americans, a lot of them, because they don't understand, they're reaching for this kind of, very visceral and kind of perceptible way of understanding and making it all about that. And what they're doing is they're impacting their relations with each other. They're not really addressing the issue or, you know, addressing it properly or understandably, in my opinion. And if they continue doing that, it's going to evolve into, it's kind of already happened a little bit. It's happening more and more and people stop it. It's going to evolve into just a purely religious conflict, which is not, and framing it that way does not help. And it's going to impact, you know, the way we interact with each other here and govern here and obviously in Europe, there's part tensions in France and other countries between Muslim and Jewish communities. For the most part, American Muslims, American Jews, they kind of tend to be a bit more educated, higher socioeconomic strata. So it's not exactly the same. And there's a lot of you know intermixing in professional s- settings. But it could really coarsen and poison those relationships. And I think we have to push back against that and clarify what's actually going on here. And it's not that. And some people have know have said that very clearly, reiterated. It bears upon all of us to reiterate. It's not a religious conflict between 
everyone everywhere. And, you know, to embrace it that yeah. way would be very damaging. So just really quickly, um, I don't know if this is true because I don't know enough about it, but my one thing that I did say is I know a lot of my American Jewish friends are scared. I don't think American Jews are really under threat. Um, I think, yes, there's some harsh things said, but they should deal with it. But uh, I did order some Israeli kippahs. I am going to wear them. Uh, in public, uh, just I just want to I want to test it out because that's my hypothesis. But I'm not visibly Jewish, so maybe I don't know. So I'm going to try it out. Um, but that's you know, I just want to put that out there. Yeah, I hmm. I think it's one of those things like it, the fact that we have such a fascination, like the Western world, but just the world in general has such a fascination with Israel Palestine is a curse. It's such a curse onto them. That they are, you know, on the one hand, obviously, like they get more, they get more aid, like there's no way that Palestine would have the kind of developmental and, you know, humanitarian aid, the the, the money that they get, they just wouldn't have if they were just uh, not relevant to our politics. At the same time, like this is they they get pulled into you know in our currents, like whatever's roiling through the American politics and the American scene at the moment, that's going to impact how events that happen there that have nothing to do with it are perceived. They know that they know they're tied down to it. I think it is a, I think it is a curse. So to, to some extent, I mean, people get pissed off when I say this, it's not that I'm saying look away from horror. <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying reckon recognized your own, you know, limitations of knowing what is going on accurately and recognize also uh, your ability to, you, well, you know, that, that, I guess the weakness of your own reason um, and how empathy can backfire in this case and mislead you and put you in a position where you are downplaying the horror playing out in somebody else's house. So I just think, you know, maybe for some of us, it's better just to look away and to then to say that we're going to pause on our opinion and, and not hold one. Everyone gets mad at me when I say this, like, this is like a, a oh. this is like an opinion that, that no, I was. I, 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 I'll let, these guys have something to say, but I was with you, Sarah, until basically, like, again, until like, yeah, yeah, no, person, I, personally, last weekend, I was basically with you. I do feel, I do feel diff- this this weekend did do something, and I'm, you know, I'm still processing it emotionally, and I'm closer back to where I was before before this weekend. Um, but yeah, you're right that there's something something changed still. I think on the whole. What what are we doing here? Are we helping the situation by participating? Yeah, no, I, I actually agree with everything you said. But I was actually going to say too, there's like this level of like mania that sometimes builds up around certain issues. I could think today, like people I know got these messages saying don't go to work because Hamas has declared a global day of jihad. I've never heard of this in my life. I actually looked into what they were talking about. Apparently, the former head of Hamas uh, issued a statement saying people and Arab Muslim countries should protest today and put pressure on the governments. And this was reinterpreted online and went viral as like a, a global insurrection day. It's going to happen on Friday and everyone's going to kill everyone. In America, people were responding this way. Companies were responding in fear to this, even though there's no intelligence at all behind it. And it's the most baffling thing I've heard in my life. It's like people go crazy. They actually go crazy. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is how it was after 9-11, though. Yeah, not just after 9-11. I think social media is made. So, like, yeah, what would couple, no, 9-11 be like yeah. if it had happened in this time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple of years, like, you know, the last couple of years, we've seen a few outbursts of social mania that's taken place. And I've seen it. It is totally possible for a whole society to go crazy all at once. It's 100% possible. It can cool off. And then maybe they forget about it, they deny it later on. 
but it definitely can happen. And mm-hmm. I can see it happening right now over this. Mm-hmm. But at least if at least if Twitter was around post nine eleven, more of us would be able to challenge a dominant narrative with all the gatekeepers and mainstream media having a very particular view. I mean, as as some of you will recall, um, it was very hard to hear alternative viewpoints. So I can also see the other argument that t- we would have heard from Twitter Iraqis, and so. having an open like marketplace of debate. Yeah, you have a lot of crazy shit that people say and you have to kind of filter that out. But it does create space for things that you otherwise wouldn't hear. And if you want to challenge the dominant consensus, which is very stifling and narrow, Mm -hmm. um, you need to have these decentralized networks to do that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is, is is disinformation over? I mean, because like the whole, the narrative control, but I mean, in terms of like, the idea of narrative control, because it seems like it's all over the place right now. It's not like Ukraine. Like Ukraine was like, I feel like much more controlled, at least in the West, in the U.S. Well, because in that case, there was only really one side. It was clear, like any just reasonable people, like there isn't a lot of range of opinions that you have to accommodate on on the Ukraine conflict. I mean, R- Russia's really bad. And then you have the Ukrainians who are on the receiving end of that. Of that. You know, in this case, you have you have two primary parties to the conflict, each with legitimate historical narratives and very distinct ones that emphasize different things over the past century. And um, I don't, I don't love the. It's complicated. I mean, yes, it is complicated, as you know, a lot of conflicts are. But um, I, I worry too that emphasizing how complicated it is can lead to a sense of complacency of just kind of putting our hands up and saying, well, these two sides, they're fighting. There's not a whole lot we can do. There isn't a clear sense of what justice might look like and so forth. But certainly Israel is not equivalent to Russia um, and the Palestinians are not equivalent to Ukraine and vice versa. So it doesn't really work in that sense, but maybe folks would disagree. I don't know. No, I think oh, that's, the murkiness fair. of it is just it's that's part of the problem with this conflict in particular. Yeah. I'm in favor of the US staying out in the sense that not because I think it's a necessarily a bad force, but I don't think it's played a constructive role in this conflict. And what that means now, I don't know, because they're sending aircraft carriers and providing weapons to Israel. Uh, right okay, now, you're so being very like, nice, Marteza. I have to just like intervene with your niceness. No, it isn't that the US hasn't played a constructive role. The U.S. for decades has played a destructive role. Like, I think that that's also where moral clarity becomes important. Um, The U.S. has unquestioningly supported um, an Israeli, especially in recent years, um, in recent decades, actually, is successive Israeli governments that have expanded settlements. Netanyahu actually was fine with Hamas and Fareed Zechariah has a really good column on this that just came out in the Washington Post where he actually goes into detail of how Netanyahu himself not only was fine with Hamas, but appears to have preferred Hamas to the alternatives. Um, You know, there's a lot you can say on this, but the U.S. decided to indulge Netanyahu for such a long time and to actively prevent 
any hope of a Palestinian state from emerging. I mean, this is so I, you know, I, I think that the U S has been absolutely like terrible on this topic for such a long, for decades, really. Um, and it's worth calling that out. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Shadi, that I you. Didn't mean, I didn't mean to be your anger I'm, translator. I'm, I'm like a. I should have been a diplomat, actually. That's because I'm very, I'm very diplomatic. Do you yeah, need... you're really chillaxed. Yeah. Is is do you need a anger translator, Mortaza? Is there like another, <laughs> is there another side to you that we need? Like <laughs> that's true. Like I, yeah, you're like the most chill I dude. Say, I just try to be measured about. It. Like, I do get angry, but I get emotional about. It. But everyone, everyone's getting so emotional, freaking out. I have to try to be, you know. <laughs> No, not not, not shy, yeah. people in general. Well, so I've, to... I've seen Murtaza actually like um uh calm down like uh frothing at the mouth Hindu nationalists. And they're like, oh, oh, he's he's actually kind of chill. <laughs> or like, you know, or like maybe like, oh, actually he's cool. You know, I was like, oh, okay, like he has this way. Cause like normally I'm like, you know, shut up, you fucking retard, you know. <laughs> like Murtaza never says anything like that. Like I just escalate, you know. <laughs> I I think you're pretty good, Razib. Actually, you're at, at at keeping your cool in in conversations. Like when I listen to you, um, you know, it, it, talking to people that I've seen that I know you don't like super agree with all the time. But I feel like you're pretty good at it. Like, well, I know I'm. I'm, I'm just like my. I think my Twitter persona is a little. I'm a little harsher. You Mine know. Is too. I mean, yeah. yeah. Like I mean, in real life, it's a little different. Guys, what about um, me? What's my persona? Um, you're, you're, you're more cerebral. Cause I think like you're a legit academic and like a columnist and stuff. You know what I'm saying? More I mean, like, <laughs> what's the difference between his real persona and his Twitter persona? I think, I think they're kind of converging. The real persona is like, uh, you know, a little bit more, uh, <laughs> well, I'm not going <laughs> to, you're very much a bachelor. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Wait, who are we talking about? <laughs> I'm just talking about you, Shadi. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, what do you mean? What, how how does one have a bachelor persona on Israel Palestine? Not Israel Palestine. I'm just saying, like, I'm saying your general Twitter persona. You're a very serious. Um, you're a very serious. Like, you're relatively sober on the whole. Like, you're just you're very sober because you're a columnist at the Washington Post now. You're at Brookings. That's who you are. Um, whereas like, you know, I don't like have any like serious institutional affiliation like that. But I, I mean, I should probably be a little more opinions careful. and I'm not afraid to share them. So like your I, opinions I, are, I you're, they're, pre- but they're presented in a sober way, you know, like you're like, maybe you're Thomas Friedman on steroids or something, but you're still Thomas Friedman online, you know? Wow. Thank you. Wow. I guess. I don't know. You should, I don't know if you should be thanking me. I don't know if you should be thanking me, you know, I think like Sarah's pretty chill. Murtaz is pretty chill. I'm like the one who, uh. I have some moments and I just like, I don't care, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know. People, people don't like my like Twitter persona very much. And I think they get, well, feel like I'm different in person as well. I don't know. Why. I'm not, I'm not into, I'm not into the whole, like uh, the gender stuff. I'm not into like all of that normally, but you know, I've talked to my friend Megan McArdle about this. There is a different way women are treated online by both men and women that guys do not have to deal with. I, and it's just, that's just a fact. It's probably like a real implicit bias. Like some of it is intersexual competition. Oh, Mary, Megan told me when she hit a certain age, um, some of the snarkiness from women disappeared. Mm. Wait, snarkiness from other women towards her? Yeah, intersexual competition. Yeah. People, uh, women, I see. I have to go soon. So let's, but this isn't, I think yeah. this is very interesting. 
Well, okay, this is like unrelated, but all I'm trying to say is like, um, I mean, if you look at Sarah's replies, which I, she does not do all the time, um, like there are creepy guys, but there's also women that comment on her looks. That's like totally irrelevant. Okay, yeah. Like, what is so? What are they competing about? I mean, you do you not understand like what intersexual competition is? It's not a phrase that I'm extremely familiar with. Okay, so it basically is like men and women compete within their own sex. Women in particular tend to compete verbally. And so, you know, older women compete with younger women. So a lot of the age gap discourse, people argue that it's older women that are angry at younger women and so forth. And so when when Megan, I mean, I think I can tell this because Megan's talked about this sort of stuff. This is over dinner. But basically when she hit a certain age, uh, a lot of the women that were really harsh on her kind of just faded away. Um, so because they no longer saw her as a threat, they never saw her. They never saw her as a young woman. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's like you're like what, like you're you're 32. Like, what do you know? You know, you're only getting paid attention to because, like, you know, you're pretty. That's basically what I'm what I'm getting at. Okay, and I've seen I've seen that in the replies. Actually, I've like literally seen that in the replies to Sarah. Wait, so these older women are like Sarah, you're too I don't know if they I don't know if they're older, but they don't seem super young the way they they're writing. They're not like writing like they're on a smartphone, they're TikTok generation, that's for sure. <laughs> I've made some unfortunate comments about like, you know, what the difference between the sexes and like what this means for how we how we couple and how, you know, and I I've made comments about marriage and motherhood and how it changes you and I get a lot of heat at at those at those moments. I'll get heat I mean, it, from men too, but it tends to be that if I'm specifically talking about that, I'll get I'll get heat from women. Sometimes about my looks, yeah, it's really weird. But like, why is it allowed in that com- in that context? You know, um, and not really okay in any other. Whatever, we're really getting, we're really yeah. Getting- should we uh, should we close should we uh, close yeah, up yeah, on some on yeah, something? Yeah. Um, so, um, I guess like, let's, let's, can we talk about one last thing? Cause we've been talking about the foreign stuff. Um, one of the issues that's going on is like BL, a lot of these BLM chapters aside from the DSA, um, also, you know, they did the paragliding thing. Um, and, uh, you know, Karen Atia was angry because, you know, apparently like some black women are now being ignored. Um, a lot of the people on the right, there's some chatter that, okay, like this is going to fracture the American cultural left and it's going to reduce the power because intersectionality is not working correctly anymore. Um, and like, what do you guys, do you guys have any take on that? I think, um, I think like, look, uh, there, I mean, Jews are really overrepresented among the intellectual elite of the cultural left. And a lot of them are very spooked and that's really stupid from an institutional perspective if you're on that side. That's my opinion. What does that mean, stupid? What do you mean by that? As an iron law of institutions, like they're going like far left and they're being radical to increase their status within the institution. But now they're people, some of the people that could be some of their best supporters are peeling off. I mean, there are there are billionaires now who are saying they're not going to give to Harvard. And, you know, right-wing billionaires love giving to Harvard. Because Harvard's Harvard, you know? If they're actually doing that, they're seriously pissed. If they're withdrawing their gifts, they're seriously pissed. I think that if you look at the origins of the neoconservative movement, they actually, a lot of the intellectuals were people who were disaffected Jewish leftists who were pissed off at the uh, tactics and behavior of some of their third worldist allies, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And then look what happened. So I think, you know, unless people, which is pretty unlikely, but unless there's some sort of 
about face and conciliation now, then something that's going to happen again. People are going to turn right. They're going to get red pilled in some new way. And I think uh, Sorab Amari has has um, been tweeting and and writing about this, you know, over the past week about a kind of new political alignment, like a new center. I don't fully follow or share his logic, but there's definitely something happening where um, people are sort of, some people at least are reconsidering their, their allies and alliances. And, you know, it depends. I think it depends how long this lasts and it depends how much worse it gets in Gaza. Um, if you have a full on like ground invasion then this is going to be with us for quite some time and it's it's going to get a lot worse. So, but I, I think we're going to have to, like Americans do tend to um, lose, have an attention deficit disorder. They don't actually, they're not able to focus on one thing for long periods of time. So I don't know, like I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical that this is going to be the number one issue for a long time. But then again, Maybe this is the sort of thing that does, it captures all these different currents of anger and frustration. You have the overlap of foreign policy and then domestic culture war debates. It all sort of fits together. Like if you're anti-Muslim, there's a lot to go on here. If you're anti-Semitic, there's a lot to go on here. There's a, there's a little bit something for everyone. Yeah, I, I doubt it's going to be, I, I agree. I don't think it's going to be as long as whatever uh, happened after 9-11. What's interesting is like in this like brief realignment period that we have, there's, you know, less so much uncertainty, but a lot of freedom also, you know, like there's like, we don't know who you're, you don't know who your enemy is yet. So you can start having interesting conversations. And even like, like this conversation is just, it's kind of a realignment kind of a conversation, you know, it's at a, there's a point at which, okay, who, what, what now, what are we facing? Maybe let's have a conversation. So that's kind of, that's kind of neat. And there's a little bit of freedom there. And I think we should enjoy that while we have it um, until things start becoming more black and white, which I fear might happen pretty soon. Uh, In terms of, this was a nice conversation. Like this, for example, like one might've imagined that it would be much more contentious um, cause we, we do have quite different views on, on any number of things here, but you, actually uh, like we're, we're, I think the four of us are relatively calm and, you know, maybe presumptively generous towards people who disagree with uh, us, at least to some extent, not to kind of pat ourselves on the back too much. But I think part of what intellectual Brown web is about is like, we are very different and that's okay. And we just don't freak out about it. Yeah. We got to live in the world. And in the world, there's people who disagree with you intensely. That's how it's always been. And I feel like of late, though, you know, maybe because of social media, everyone wants to like polarize and get into the bubble. And, you know, I will say, um, you know, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I saw some stuff about a pro-Palestinian, you know, day of rage or whatever protest and some Jewish women were crying. And I'm sure they heard some really harsh things. But, um, you know, I also believe, look, this is America. People can say harsh things. And, you know, if you're if you're strong in your Jewishness and your ethnicity and identity or whatever and being American, fuck them. You know, Um, I think we need to just say, like, fuck them. Like, you know, and I'll just say very quickly, someone um, on Twitter had 
said something to me like, "Oh, Sarah Hader, your um, your occasional IBW friend buddy, um, look at what she's saying about Israel Palestine. How are you okay with this? You should condemn her." And I was like, "Sarah and I disagree on certain things, but I know that she approaches these issues in good faith, and that's all that really matters. Like as long as that's there, like you know, so it just." People are, um, well, it's good that this person was at least aware of like um, intellectual brown web. Uh, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, I think that's really what matters the most is good faith interlocutors who actually appreciate that we live in a pluralistic world where there are foundational divides. Like this idea that, th- again, like this is stating the obvious to like anyone who is at minute, hour and a half of this podcast is like, none of the four of us like agreeing too much. We think agreement is boring. It's also not realistic. It's not a reflection of the world as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like it's, you know, one of the reasons that the, the Bill Ackerman, Ackerman, Ackerman. It's um, Ackerman. It's Ackerman. Ackerman. Okay. Don't, don't miss surname him. That's that's Um, triggering. One of the reasons that the actions like, like that really, like upsets me a little bit is because it is something and and what happened to you Razib like upsets me is that we do change all the time you know it's not just that that we're different and we have differences of opinion um and we feel strongly about it and come to it come to those opinions in good faith but also that we are in flux you know and the only way to maintain that flux is to have conversations and like get to a point where we uh, you know, like separate out what what actually divides us versus what we think divides us. And I think it's, you know, uh, it's an approach to an individual as this like very static thing that really bothers me because I haven't, I don't feel that way about myself. You know, I've, I've shifted to, I mean, famously I left Islam, you know, I believed in something and then I didn't believe in something. And, and so I have this sense of self as not sh- like fundamentally changing, but given that I'm finding different reasons, different arguments, different, you know, uh, like knowing different things about the world, I am as a person, you know, being moved. And I think that that's, that's, that's part of my humanity. And that's part of like, I think what we're doing here, oh, this is getting so cute, guys. It's just, we're let's, getting let's so, like, we're getting so, it's, 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 hand, it's, it's getting, it's getting a little much. I think, yeah, yeah. we've, we've made Mortez is uncomfortable. Look at him. He's yeah. getting, <laughs> Do you want to, do you want do you want to end us with a, a divisive comment maybe yeah. like something to like like start a fire before we can actually reconcile tell Noah Smith what you really think about him yeah that guy is an idiot that guy is an absolute moron but uh, no I was very actually I was, I was gonna say something funny like I hate all you guys and it was disgusting very comments but uh, no I, I agree with what you said and actually actually that's why I want to have this conversation because everyone is going so insane I was thinking we have these have access to these three people who I know are not insane let's try to have a conversation about it and share it with people. So maybe we can cool people off in whatever little bit. And people like that guy who are just losing their minds, psychopaths, and you know, hopefully mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. who are more amenable, they can, they can hear it. Yeah, passion is fine. We are passionate about things. But also, nobody knows everything. And so you have to have also a little bit of humility and take a little step back. And um, you know, I'm not, again, as I said, like I've given a lot of grace and slack. Uh, to my friends who are Jewish who've been a little intemperate recently, but I get that. But at the end of the day, I think that will fade. I think people will, I mean, just come back to earth a little bit because, you know, unfortunately, we're going to go through a lot. I mean, there's probably going to be a month long campaign. 
Um, you know, this is a big deal. There's gonna be a lot of geopolitics and it's not just gonna be so personalized. I think exposure to social media, Hamas uploading a lot of their atrocities, frankly, um, was, was, you know, that was a, a shock, a psychic shock. And a lot of us are trying to recover, but we still live in the world. And, you know, even though there's been a lot of misery in the world, there's a lot of death and destruction, that's always humanity. We've also been able to create something greater out of it. Um, and just having conversations and seeing each other's humanity. And, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not Muslim. I'm not an Arab. I'm not a Jew. I'm a human, you know, and that's why I care. That's why I care about those babies, whether they're, whether they're Palestinian or Israeli, obviously. I mean, th- that it even needs to be said is sad, but let me just say it, right? Let's just say it. We are all human. And like babies do not have an ideology. They do not have an ethnicity. They do not even have a religion, you know? They are babies. And so um, I think that's why I decided to just start talking. Like, I, couldn't, I couldn't help it. It was just like, like, what the hell is going on in this world? You know, so. Whole genome sequencing is used for adults and children every day to assess risk for thousands of diseases. Orchid, a genetics company led by scientists from Stanford, is able to do this for IVF embryos. Now, instead of waiting for a diagnosis, parents can assess if their embryos have genetic variants known to cause severe conditions before their child's even born. No other tests can detect these issues so thoroughly or so early. So check them out at orchidhealth.com. This podcast for kids.